before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now on with the show. Uh, not quite. Before we begin this edition of The Endgame, I have an announcement to make regarding the future of this podcast. Beginning February 1st, the Grant Williams podcast will become part of the Copper membership tier of my new website, grant-williams.com. The Copper tier will include every future episode of The Endgame, the super terrific happy hour and the narrative game, as well as access to a series of special one-on-one conversations I'll be having with a group of extraordinary people throughout the rest of this year. And that will begin with my dear friend and mentor, Anthony Deeden of Edelweiss Holdings. Now, at the website, grant-williams.com, you'll also find a silver tier, which in addition to access to the Grant Williams podcast, will include a year's subscription to my monthly newsletter, Things That Make You Go Hmm. But you can find out more about all that by simply visiting the site. Again, that's grant-williams.com. And I thank you all for listening. Now, on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of The Endgame, a very special edition of The Endgame, one that Bill and I have both been extremely excited about having the opportunity to do. Um, uh, and when I say the name Bill, of course, I'm talking about my co-host, Bill Fleckenstein. Bill, how rude of me not to introduce you first. How are you, mate? That's okay. Uh, I, I won't be offended, Grant. Thank you very much. <laughs> now, you are safely down in the desert in California, in the sunshine? Yes, yes. yes. Well, the weather's much nicer than it is in Seattle. <laughs> yeah, right. Tennis? You play tennis? As, as much as I can, yes. Attaboy. Attaboy. You don't have to wear a mask when you play tennis, I suppose. No, for it's, although when, uh, when, they, when we first were, let the, the, the pressure off last year, they wanted everyone to play tennis outside uh, yeah. with masks on. But anyway, Good. that's well, another story. Some sense at last, anyway. Well, our, our, our guest today, um, as people will have seen, um, because they'll be tuning in to listen to him, is uh, the one and only Paul Singer, which... Um, yeah, I, th- I think you and I are both equally excited about having the chance to talk to Paul. Yes, and I, I think that for people that don't know, um, Paul's records, I, th- I think they started Run Money in 77, around there sometime. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he's seen a, a lot and, and managed their money through a lot of different cycles. Uh, and the amazing thing is that they've done it through so many, what, what, what normal people would look at as saying complicated, complicated topics where there's so many different outcomes and you have to have really, really tremendous analysis and all that. So I, I I think some people who may be listening may not know of the, the, um, um, uh, intellectual and market savvy, uh, uh, man and organization that he built that is about to share his information with them or his thoughts yeah, with and, them. And there's a good reason for that. You know, Paul Paul keeps a very low profile, which is, I think, why we're, we're so excited to have a chance to talk to him today. And as you say, Bill, I mean, he's done just an extraordinary job of, um, of stewarding capital through so many different market environments. And, and, so and, and, and not an odd lot, I might add. No, I'm no. pretty sure they're managing north of $40 billion, something like that. So it's, you know, I think other, another thing that a lot of people don't appreciate is how difficult it is to actually manage 
large, I mean, really large pools of capital and manage the risk at the same time. Yeah. Um, they, it's just, it's, it's mind numbingly complicated. So, um, I mean, anyway, having a chance to pick Paul's brains about how he sees the world today is, um, is a great opportunity. So I, I think we shouldn't waste any more time. You and me blabbing around. We should actually chat to Paul. What do you think? Let's do it. Paul, it's, 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 such a, it's such a great opportunity to speak to you. I mean, Bill and I have been putting this podcast series together called The Endgame. Um, and actually, our very first guest, the very first thing they said was, well, of course, there is no endgame. And he was absolutely right. What, we're, what we think we're trying to figure out is, is what the transition looks like from here to whatever comes next. And I think a big part of that kind of bleeds into the first question, this whole era of central bank money printing, which feels like it may kick into overdrive now. I think Bill's been looking for some time to understand whether the bond market is ultimately the catalyst for the end of this, or, or perhaps there's some other crisis looming that, that, that everybody's missing. And we've used Japan as the model, but no one seems to be able to give us a, a sensible uh, breakdown of, of how Japan might ultimately fall over. So we'd, we'd love to kick off by just getting your thoughts on that. I think you just asked like four questions in there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I do. <laughs> so why don't you? Uh, let, let, let's simplify it into into just this 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 era of central bank money printing. Um, how does it end? Do you think? And is there a, a specific catalyst that you're focused on that may be the end of it? Well, um, I, I respect the way you um, uh, you framed the question, but it's really not a question of how it can end. There's there's a lot of path dependency here. Over a long period of time, central bank control or uh, purported control of the global economy and financial system and the deference with which fiscal authorities and investors uh, have given to central bankers has just, you know, step by step and episode by episode just gotten more, um, more pervasive. Uh, in uh, uh, the response to 2008, this um, the ZERP, uh, zero interest rate policy, this quantitative easing, this emergency policy, which uh, was certainly needed in the immediate aftermath of the crisis. The central banks allowed the crisis to develop by not really understanding the risks. But once the crisis did develop, of course, you need to uh, radically um, uh, reduce interest rates and some asset buying during the crisis period was certainly um, sort of playbook crash playbook and appropriate. But what happened after that um, nine years of crisis techniques long after the crisis was finished was extremely dangerous. And I think the central banks came to enjoy their role of uh, being Samson, holding up the global um, uh, financial system and economy. And they weren't punished by consumer price inflation. They didn't understand that this asset price inflation, which had a secondary or tertiary of positive effect on growth and employment, but they didn't understand that that was a form of inflation, that that's where the, the free money and the money printing uh, uh, went. And so they didn't at all take into account that they were exacerbating the inequality that became a uh, populist 
political theme. Uh, and so this whole period of 2010, let's call it, to 2019, just built and built this, A, this confidence in the central bankers, B, the central bank balance sheets, which pre-COVID, what was it, up to $17 trillion of assets, yeah. including in yeah. the case of Japan and the Swiss uh, National Bank, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of stocks. You know, the Japanese Central Bank, even a couple of years ago, was a 10% or more shareholder in several hundred of the top uh, Japanese stocks. So you had this gradual buildup and the small attempts by the United States, by the Fed, to start to normalize financial conditions, which led to the $4.5 trillion balance sheet of the Fed to go down to like 3.7 or 3.8 and allowed the 0% interest rates to go up to two and a quarter, two and a half. Now, as we know, toward the end of 2018, the um, two and a quarter, two and a half percent, the last 25 basis point rise seemed to be the catalyst for a 20% downturn in global stocks. So they panicked. The president of the United States blamed this 20% downturn, which is not a crash. I mean, it was an abrupt downturn. On the Fed, the president told the Fed the interest rate should be zero. Why should Europe be, quote, ahead of the United States, uh, close quote, um, in reducing interest rates? And so what that showed me uh, and uh, other practitioners was the Fed was trapped. The central banks, bankers were trapped. They couldn't normalize a, a lousy two and a half percent short term rate caused this or seemed to cause uh, be the catalyst for this 20% downturn. If you fast forward to early 2020, pre-COVID, what you find is everyone was back to zero interest rates or below, everyone meaning the central banks. And um, again, this, let's call it $17 trillion still on the central bank balance sheets. I made the point that this was not a good condition to be in pending or in advance of the next adverse market conditions from whatever direction they could come in. So here you have, starting in February, this 36% drawdown in the U.S. stock market in a straight line as a result of the developing COVID situation and the policy response. And so all of a sudden, in a very short period of time, the 17 trillion has gone to something like uh, 24, 25 trillion. Spending yeah. deficits have gone uh, through the roof. The interest rates basically everywhere, except for China, are um, zero, the policy rates, zero or below. And what bonds are relying on is some combination of the following. I think there's a very widespread belief on the part of investors that inflation is, as the central banks say it is, really hard to generate. They think, wow, if only we could get to 2%, 
And it's so dangerous being under 2%. They think it's dangerous. And they think it's so dangerous that they switched from let's get to 2% to let's average 2% over a period of time. Mm -hmm. Now we're getting into the nitty-gritty of the danger here and the problem and what happens next and then next after next. Because... Let's average 2% when you're coming from under 2% uh, has the following uh, characteristics. Inflation, what, do you, what period are you averaging? Mm. Are you averaging two years, five years, 10 years of, infl- of consumer price inflation? Yep. And so when inflation gets to be two and a quarter or two and a half on a couple of or a few monthly readings or two and three quarters, do they really mean that they are going to stand by and start congratulating or high-fiving each other because they finally generated the inflation? The reason I'm asking it that way is because how do you distinguish inflation uh, readings of two and a half percent annualized or two and three quarters or three? How do you distinguish that as merely creating this arithmetical average, which is completely arbitrary, how do you distinguish that from a situation in which after 13 years and counting of the most radical policy of the developed world in history from inflation breaking out? If you look at the inflation of the 1960s and 70s, inflation came in the mid to late 1960s from basically very low levels. They didn't see it coming, they meaning the policymakers, the central bankers. And when it came, they thought it was temporary and one off. And one thing leads to another. So we know about the oil embargo of 1973, which took oil prices up three or four times. So wages, prices, guns and butter, the great society, the Vietnam War, and increases in the money supply, all combined. But once inflation lifted off, it just kept on going. And so from one, one and a half, two in 1968, I believe it was something like three or four. Labor unions had more of a um, uh, more power back then, uh, a lot more power than they do today. We'll talk about tomorrow in a while. But um, once they generate some inflation, bondholders today and investors and policymakers, I believe, universally believe that. It's not the case that inflation, if it pokes above two or two-ish, they don't think that that's an accelerating point or a a point of escape velocity. They will think, oh, it's fine. It's great. We've gotten some inflation. We're no longer in danger of inadequate inflation. But because of the radical monetary policy, which, which has been going on for such a long time without consumer price um, liftoff, let's just call it. Because of that, I think policymakers and investors don't really have that in their minds as possibilities. And so 
it's not necessarily the case, in my view, that the uh, financial world and the economic world will respond to the latest burst of radical monetary and fiscal policy the same way as it did from 2010 to 2019. Another way of saying what I just said is, I think there's a really good chance, given the determination to spend trillions and trillions more on uh, COVID relief and stimulus, whatever you want to call it, to guarantee, quote unquote, which is ridiculous, these super low interest rates for the next three years, uh, and to keep verbally uh, boxing themselves in I think there's a really good chance of a uh, tremendous surprise and uh, uh, a surprise in the relatively near future. What would that surprise be? Some combination of actual consumer price inflation bursting out and keeping on going. That would be a stunning development to central bankers. And the reason it would be stunning is because they will be sitting back and watching the first burst of two and a half and three percent inflation. But if it keeps going, their um, what I regard as their their smug assumptions regarding what's actually radical monetary policy will start to be challenged. And once they realize that their theories, which had no theoretical or empirical mm -hmm. basis, by the way that their theories were wrong or could possibly be wrong, and inflation is not calming down, but wage, uh, wage pressures are coming in for a variety of reasons. Supply chain issues are, um, uh, are on the horizon. From just in time, hasn't COVID made a tremendous change in the mentality of governments and corporations? From just in time, isn't it going to start being just in case? Uh, isn't the last 20 years worth of uh, corporate decision-making that says, where's the cheapest, most reliable stuff? Oh, okay, China or and five other places. That's no longer going to be the sole discussion around the table. Yeah. It's yeah. going to be, okay, what about national security? What about national economic security? What about political policies aimed at bringing supply chains um, uh, of all kinds of stuff closer to home, not just, you know, America and America first or whatever, but, but a generalized global understanding that just in time, let's buy the cheapest and, you know, reliable by the standards of, you know, the, the new history will be uh, changing. So some combination, I said some com combination of that or currency movements generating inflation, I think it's highly likely. It's very difficult uh, given that economists don't have a good history of predicting inflation, turning points in inflation, the reasons why inflation exists or doesn't exist, the reasons why these emerging market countries with policies very similar to uh, those that are undertaken now uh, in the developed world that some of these emerging market countries are generating through excessive spending and money printing, really staggering amounts of inflation. So I think yeah. 
when we're talking about the end game uh, uh, in terms of central bank policy, um, I think we're at the beginning of a path-dependent and complicated set of processes in which the first thing that may happen may be some growth in inflation in these different areas that we've been talking about, combined with the um, uh, more of what we've been seeing in the bond markets in recent days, really, of some kind of response to the anticipation of the uh, the spending and the uh, you know the, uh, the increased deficits that seem to be on the horizon and once that lights up into somewhat higher uh, inflationary numbers there could be uh, wage pressures uh, there could be um, from the expected increase in labor power under the new American uh, government. So I think there can be something analogous to the wage price spiral. And all I can say about any attempt to quantify it or date it, I, I think it's, it, it, it's kind of doomed because it depends what happens after those pressures and those price rises start to happen. For example, I think it's been senseless for people to be continuing to own long-term bonds at these crazy yields. In Europe, the 30-year swap got to minus 40 basis points, and I believe today it's like basically zero. It's plus two basis points or something. 30-year swap. And um, in America, the uh, the 30-year government bond is 1.6% or 1.7%. It doesn't make sense, even with current inflation, to hold those instruments. No institution can meet their goals by owning those bonds. They're no longer a hedge against equity portfolios. They are speculative instruments. When you buy something with no yield, where you can only make money if the yield goes from zero to minus five or minus 10, you're engaged in speculation. You're not engaged in investing. And when you're doing that at the same time that because of the same forces, stocks are priced toward the very top end of the, the historical range. And the signs of speculation are every bit as, let's just call them vivid, as the most speculative uh, uh, episodes and uh, modern financial um, uh, market history. What you have, and and the, the part of the question was, um, will the bond market be um, be the catalyst or something like that? We can see already that the bond market seems to be anticipating some increase in inflation, but markets can and frequently do try to get ahead of what they anticipate, and so. It's not necessarily the case that the bond market will just gradually readjust to gradual increases in inflation. If I'm correct that there's a deep-seated belief, a, a kind of a rigid belief, that real inflation in the 1970s style is impossible, or really not something that you should really put in your risk matrix, then the realization, if I'm right, that that's incorrect, 
that actually um, all of this, um, uh, this lavish monetary and fiscal policy is going to likely lead to significant inflation, then bonds could have a very significant and abrupt and intense price readjustment. Uh, I'm not talking about the 15%, but a price readjustment to yields of three or four <laughs> um, for the 30-year or the 10-year uh, in America would cause quite a ruckus, right. well, quite a ruckus, including in the stock market as the stock market realizes perhaps um, that um, things have changed and the Fed is not necessarily uh, going to be protecting every investor, stocks and bonds against loss. Paul, when you lay that case out and it seems so uh, logical and the facts are on the, your side behind all the the argument and bullet points, I'm sort of uh, um, amazed that with other smart people in the world, why so little um, credence is given to that, uh, to the consequences of that outcome? It, 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 I would have thought given the investment environment I've lived through since the early 80s, um, that if, if you would have told people that the central bank is trapped and um, the policy consequences were quite severe, I wouldn't have guessed that the response would be to buy as much beta as possible. Do you think it's because nothing, quote unquote, bad has happened uh, against the central banks, as you said at the beginning of 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 um, your answer? Did you think that's what's made people sort of blind to this outcome? Is it just the financial equivalent of muscle memory or or does it or does it even matter to speculate as to why? I, I, I think, um, I mean, this is an interesting discussion in a lot of respects, but um, I think if there's one thing that I would say um, is the most useful thing I can, um, uh, I can respond to these, uh, uh, in these elements, it's, it's best to think about financial markets as examples of mass human behavior rather than anything scientific or modelable because financial markets contain numbers, lots of numbers and prices uh, uh, and marks to market, everything. It's easy to misunderstand them as actual physical phenomena and people who are engaged in quantitative trading and investing do seem to make money by some process <laughs> related to computers spitting out, you know, uh, numbers and orders. But um, if you think of investing and trading as examples of mass human behavior, then what you said a couple of moments ago is exactly right. It's how were people conditioned? It's not logical to think that um, zero percent interest rates can persist and not result in a, a crack. It's not logical that people can walk into um, the office or their computer today and pay an $800 billion enterprise value at a thousand times, uh, more than a thousand times earnings and the earnings are fake anyway. Yeah. But they do it because either Others around them are doing it or because they they think, and basically they're wrong about this, 
that they will be able to get out before the others get out or some some combination of those things. So I I gave up. Um, I mean, I've been investing for uh, a long time, like your like yourself. And um, I gave up a long time ago trying to base my investment management activities on the concept that markets and investors and traders are rational because people try to be rational. People think that they're rational, but quite frequently um, they're not. And um, there's hardly a better example of that today than cryptocurrencies to, to tell me that that something that's constructed as a computer program where, um, you know, uh, you, you engage in some, you know, process of sitting there in front of your computer and after some period of time and the expenditure of a bunch of electricity, something, you know, a message appears on your screen that you've actually created something. That's ridiculous. It's nothing. Um, gold is not nothing. Gold is something. Gold has uses. Gold is, is hard. Uh, you'll hurt your teeth if you bite a gold coin. But um, cryptocurrencies... I have smart people sending me articles that uh, read to me like some some Babylonian religious text, uh, if, <laughs> if I could translate it. Um, you know, it, 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 cryptocurrencies are a, a cult. And then people say, well, but the, um, the central banks are, are creating digital currencies. I say, what are you talking about? All currencies created by central banks are digital currencies. <laughs> well, what's what you mean? They're going to print more and they're going to put a sign on the computer that says these are digital <laughs> dollars. Um, those are not digital dollars. What do you mean not digital dollars? My bank account is in, in you know, on, on the computer. Um, so people have been lulled into a variety of beliefs. And one of the main beliefs, and I think it's very, very dangerous, is to trust the central banks and to trust that this radical monetary policy will not end in tears. Now, I, I admit, I just used the word end. And previously I said, there's no end. It's just path dependent and this leads to that and that leads to the other. I, I have a hard time thinking about what happens when inflation gets rolling. I, I would recommend to anyone listening to this podcast to do some reading about the great inflations of the last hundred years. I think the thing that's most interesting about the great inflations is once they get underway, um, and well before it's thousands of percent a day or a week, once they get underway, central banks get trapped in the sense that they know that if they diminish or end the money printing or whatever the technological equivalent of money printing is at that time, the next thing that will happen instantly is a crash, a financial crash, a deep recession or depression. And so that's what I mean by uh, trapped. I think central bank policy around the world has been something that has stored up this false confidence, has stored up, let's call it the ammunition for 
a future crash. And if the overall performance of the global economy and stocks and bonds in the next two or three or four years does not match or look like the performance in 2010 through 19, it's probably because um, real inflation, real crack in uh, global bond markets, and probably a crack in global stock markets is to blame. Paul, can, can I ask you, there's a couple of things in there I'd, I'd love to ask you about, because you, you talked about how um, market participants have become conditioned to certain outcomes. And we've talked about how the Federal Reserve haven't been punished. So in their own way, they've also become accustomed to the outcome, the outcome being their success at, at every turn whenever they try and fight any kind of small downturn. But I, I think that the, the, the scenario you just laid out so eloquently suggests, uh, particularly within the context of your supposition that rates go to three or four percent is a major problem, that none of this can now be allowed to happen, which which suggests that yield curve control will be at some point essential. Um, and with everybody kind of conditioned to getting the same outcome, does that actually give the central banks more latitude because everybody is going to suffer if regular market forces, particularly inflation, reassert themselves. And so does everybody buy into this and sits passively while yield curve control, for example, is instituted? You know, it's very interesting the way you framed the question, because there's no such thing as sitting passively. You're describing a set of actions and pressures. Let's let's use that physical um, metaphor for a second. Yeah. They have to go somewhere. Okay, so let's say inflation, you know, sort of breaks out a little breakout, a little breakout. It's not five, six, seven. It's it's two and a half. It's three It's three and a quarter, whatever it is for a few months. Okay, so you've posited and it's reasonable to posit because that's the working assumption you've posited that somewhere between the current one and a half percent yield on the U.S. 30 year or something like that, the Fed's going to step in, yield curve control, okay? But by stepping in with inflation, um, uh, you know, uh, at the three level and pointing to the sky, by the way, the five-year inflation swap this morning was 220. Now, I admit that there's little liquidity in those kinds of instruments, but that's up from like 120 just a few months ago. Mm-hmm. So so they step in with yield curve control. Um, where does the pressure go? It may go in the, um, uh, in the uh, exchange value of the dollar. The dollar may, uh, may fall. Or if it's a simultaneous set of actions by the major central banks of the world, the major currencies may fall against gold, silver, commodities, real estate. So uh, the notion that they can control everything uh, seems fanciful to me. And I think they'll run out of flexibility when they realize this. That's, that's why I framed the 2010s, you know, 2009, 10 to 2019, as this period that they got away with something. They engaged in something experimental and radical, and it only had good effects. It it held things up. 
You didn't need the legislatures creating excellent, intelligent, pro-growth policies because the central banks did it all. Well, now you have these extra elements. There's no shyness. There's no austerity that's going to happen anywhere in the world, uh, in the developed world. So you've got the spending. You've got this insane modern monetary theory, which basically says, well, yeah, there's this inflation thing, and that's sort of a a control, or not a control, a, a guardrail. You know, you don't want to cause inflation. But if you um, print your own currency, um, you don't have to worry about taxes. You don't have to worry about deficits. You don't have to worry about uh, default. uh, You can uh, spend whatever you want. Now, I I think that's the road to um, perdition. I I just think that's the road to uh, destruction. And the destruction would come if inflation really, um, uh, really lit up. It's very interesting that the markets seem to think that inflation and a bad economy are sort of incompatible. It's really not true. Mm -hmm. And that many of the great inflations are at a time when there's economic dysfunction, malfunction, uh, underperformance, which is attempted to be overcome by the spending and the money printing. So on the face of it, that's where the developed world is, is, uh, is headed now. Paul, when, when you talk about your framework for looking at financial markets as being more sort of psychology and emotion as opposed to math problems, if I can restate it that way, and you talk about how if inflation, once inflation gets started, how difficult it is to stop, and I can remember that from the 70s as well, um, does the psycholo- psychological component matter in the getting started of it? Uh, or do you think it has to kind of get started before psychology starts to really change? I mean, um, people are so ingrained to think that all of this works and they've got all the rationalization, rationalizations worked out as to why inflation can't possibly get started, even given the policies that are being pursued. Um, I, I was just kind of curious if, if, if I mean, after you noted the unpredictability of how it kind <clears> of... <throat> gets going, um, how crucial is psychology in, uh, in terms of psychology changing at the start of the process, if that's a fair way to think about it? It's the ball game. It's the whole ball of wax. Uh, let me answer it by reference to one of the key tenets of central bank policy and practitioners thinking about central bank policy, because the arithmetic is compelling. The combination of actual debt plus entitlements in the developed world, which to me are the functional equivalent of that, are unpayable. They're absolutely unpayable. The arithmetic is clear. Um, And when I say unpayable, I'm not talking about the nominal currency. I'm talking about purchasing power. Um, You will not get in your Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and, (laughs) and the government bonds the value that you put in plus a rate of return on that value. Okay. So that's easy. Okay. So what practitioners and uh, economists say is, well, there's a variety of ways to deal with this. One is default. Great. The other is inflating your way out of it. 
inflating your way out of it. And one of these, Christ. one of these central bankers, uh, I think it was Evans a couple of days ago, literally said something like, well, if inflation went 3%, which, you know, I, I giggled when I read this for a couple of reasons. One of them is the way he said that it was like, wow, I'm going to name a crazy number, <laughs> <Yeah>. 3%. <laughs> Right? I mean, read the, read the quote. Um, so he says, if inflation went to 3%, it wouldn't be a bad thing. Okay, so this is pathetic. Okay, it wouldn't be a bad thing. Here's the problem. The reason the statement, we can inflate our way out of it, is preposterous, is exactly what your question was. It's investor psychology. Yeah. If investors lose confidence in central bankers, the dollar and or bonds and or uh, the ability to control inflation, you know, you can you can paint pictures. You can you know, you can imagine scenarios uh, and they're not trivial scenarios. If that happens, they will front run or attempt to front run the inflation. How do you do that? You do that by selling down the bonds. What is the Fed going to own all bonds? Um, you know, the way the central bankers have gotten away with this for 13 years is, you know, Mario Draghi, you know, will do whatever it takes. Well, you stand up there and, uh, you know, you're fierce enough and you beat your chest and you look strong enough and you start growling. People say, wow. They'll do whatever it takes. So you don't have to do anything. <laughs> okay? So that's part of policy. If people actually lose confidence in money, I think it's, a, it's going to be an interesting fight. Let's call it a fair fight between investors trying to get out and governments, at least at the beginning, helping them to get out <laughs> um, by holding up the prices but you know, to answer your question very uh, precisely, I think it, it, the reason I said it's the ball game is that confidence uh, and uh, investor and citizen psychology is the key, and that's what policymakers have been relying on, and they don't really they, they seem to think that it's infinite, that the confidence is infinite, yeah. and that the damage yeah. they can do to the reality of the currency, the um, the forward rate of return, that investors just will either be fooled or placid in the face of it. It's, it's really stunning to me. You know, it, 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 as, as simple as how could investors today, and we have a lot of institutional investors, how can they sit around their tables and maintain their positions in stocks and bonds at today's prices and say, oh, we are aiming at a 7% annual return yeah. on our investment pool. Where is that 7% investment uh, return uh, from today's prices going to be um, uh, coming from? The bond side, the arithmetic is just really, really simple. On the stock side, I, I don't understand why more people don't say, wow, the bull market is at a place where the forward rate of return historically is kind of low. 
it's not it's not seven or eight percent a year. It's you know maybe maybe four or five percent for the next ten years. So how are we going to prepare the buildings? How are we going to do what we need to do? Yeah, you know, Paul, it's funny. A, a good friend of mine who's an RIA wrote a, a piece um, to his. Uh, uh, to his clients recently, and the piece was t- entitled Take Profits. This was at the beginning of the year. And he had a bunch of emails, both internally and externally, from people saying that was an alarmist headline for a piece. And it, it kind of got me thinking, you know, Take Profits used to be called investment advice. And now Take Profits has become, you know, a, too alarmist. And I think that that speaks of everything you've just talked about here, that people are fully invested. We're in that stage of the mania where confidence is so high that nothing can go wrong. Um, and earlier you, 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 you mentioned how the central bankers didn't seem to understand that this asset price inflation that we're talking about now um, was a form of inflation. So they, they clapped themselves on the back and said that there was no inflation from their policies. Is it that simple that they don't understand that? Or, or do they understand it and they're hoping nobody else understands it? Because I go backwards and forwards between the two and I really don't know the answer to that um i'm pretty sure they don't understand it and i'm pretty sure wow that um and i'll give you some supportive uh, evidence in a moment let's go back to 2005 six roughly 2005 six they don't understand it because the financial system and the um the financial innovations derivatives and uh, all kinds of complicated uh, securities have gone way ahead of economic and financial theory. They, there are no models and real experience to understand what happens when from zero in 1970 or 75, that a, a thousand trillion dollars notional of a variety of different kinds of uh, derivatives have uh, erupted in like 40 or, four, 40 or 45 or 50 years. Uh, and so I, I said I'd uh, offer some uh, evidence. As you, as you may know, um, you can obtain the um, the minutes of Fed meetings, all Fed meetings, mm-hmm. going back years. And so people have published some of what went on in Fed meetings in 2005, 6, 7. And what you can see clearly, because now we can see it in hindsight, but what you can see clearly is they had no idea of what CDOs, CDO squareds, um, subprime CDOs, that tying together of people in these tight webs of derivatives, where the triple B tranches of mortgage securitizations were used, particular tranches were used dozens and dozens of times to construct securitizations and securitizations of securitizations where the triple B was magically, because it was married to 50 triple Bs from different pools, magically turned into 85% triple A. The central bankers had no idea what was going on on the ground in the financial system on the structuring desks. And by the way, neither did, as we now know, and we knew back then, but anyone can know it now. The risk departments of the major financial institutions of the world didn't have a clue either. And so the, the answer is that 
the complexity of the financial system went way beyond uh, and is way beyond the understanding of central bankers. And they're just playing. Uh, they're playing at uh, thinking of this area as a science. It has elements of science, but they don't understand why markets can go down 20% and up 25% in like two months. That's December 2018. Down 36% in a straight line, up 67% in a straight line. That's um, uh, February, March 2020 and uh, the rest of uh, uh, 2020. And so... You need some kind of explanation of why correlation and herding is clearly, in recent years, more powerful, more abrupt, more intense than in the past. And to me, the answer is derivatives, same think, group think. And, uh, you know, when people change their minds in one direction or another, there's just so much tightness both in the structures in their portfolios in the leverage in the system, both overt leverage and through the derivatives markets. And I think central bankers, they, they don't even know how to catch up. Paul, you, you, something obviously you have a great amount of experience in is, is distressed sovereign debt. Um, and yet here we find ourselves in a world where three-year Greek bonds <laughs> have a negative yield. And and I, you know, I have to, I, I kind of go backwards and forwards with whether this is uh, the the end of an entire business model, or it's one of the greatest opportunities of a lifetime for for someone like you. How, how do you how do you kind of look at that world and weigh it up? Well, I, I I'm not going to answer um, the question just with reference to sovereign uh, sovereign debt. Sure, sure, sure. Um, the yield on Greek sovereign debt or Italian sovereign debt or uh, or uh, any other sovereign debt is subject to a lot of forces. Yeah including the consolidation, let's call it, or attempted consolidation of Europe. But I think the more interesting part of the question to me is, uh, what do you do with deep valuation aberrations? Um, And I think in this environment, it's very, very hard. You know, we've had in-house spirited discussions, let's just call it, about European yields. And I'm I'm not talking about Greece. I'm talking about... uh, the euro swap or bonds or uh, can we declare <laughs> zero yield for a 30-year euro swap, a currency that some consider a potentially a junk currency? Um, can we declare that an extreme <laughs> and can we trade it? Well, as I said a while ago, um, uh, here it is at zero or plus two today basis points um, for a 30-year swap. It's Quite a quite a <clears throat> quite a thing to do with your money, and at one point at the at the bottom, uh, you know, I don't know, a year ago or something, it was minus forty, minus forty basis points for thirty years. I mean, wow, wow. Um, I lived through the worst trade in my history in two thousand and eight, where I was long Japanese inflation-linked bonds against Japanese non-inflation-linked bonds, and I put that position on at an implied deflation rate of 2.5% per year. Wow. At the bottom, 
at the bottom after I had lost more money than I thought I could possibly lose in any trade. They were trading at minus four and a half percent per per year. Wow. Okay? No, no. At a time like that, at a price like that, the answer to the question, what did you do, is solely, um, it's based on two things. Did I have staying Emotional staying power. That was a tough time the last, uh, you know, a few months of uh, 2008. I stuck with that trade and it came obviously all the way back. But, you know, I, I think that modern markets, I mean, if, if there's anything useful, I can say, I think investors in the more humble, even more humble than in the past. And you, you always have to be humble, really humble to survive for a long time in the trading and investing in markets. But I, I think it's getting more difficult to dig your heels in from an overvaluation or an undervaluation now. A standpoint. Paul, what's what's more important to to ride that trade out? Do you think what's more important is it experience or tenure? Because there would be a lot of people who'd put that trade on, and it, and obviously uh, face value, as you, as you said, it just made so much sense. But so many people would be stopped out by their customers once it got to the extremes it reached. Is it is it tenure or is it your experience? How do you how do you mentally manage something like that? Well. Let me just say that, um, and it's, a, and I think it is a very interesting point. The way it got to four and a half percent is that most people that were in the trade, it was a popular trade. Right. Most people were stopped out. Uh, yeah. They were stopped yeah. out by the predatory investment banks. I'm not going to name them. Okay. Um, you don't or, have to. <laughs> we know who they are. Yeah. Uh, or by um, uh, or by their customers or by their um, uh, psychology. So what your question was about it was about the um, the psychology of it it's a much longer topic but you know i don't like rigid trading rules for myself flexibility versus rigidity let's call it have to be have to be individually um, um, uh, assessed there are times when you make a mistake, you think it's a mistake, or it might be a mistake, you've got to get out. And it, it, there's no magic to the difference between that and um, it may be a mistake, but I don't think it's a mistake, and I'm right. going to stick with it. Yeah. And, and sometimes you're right and sometimes you're wrong, but I can't think of uh, uh, magic rules. Um, um, guys, I'm uh, unfortunately going to have to... Uh, a bail? Do you have enough here? Uh, yeah, I, th- I think we sure do, Paul. I mean, all your points are were so s- spectacular. Um, I'm sure you could add lots more, but I think that was really great. <laughs> yeah, we're, just, we're grateful for the time you've given us, Paul. Thank you so much. It's, uh, it's hugely appreciated. Thanks so much, guys. This was fun, and I hope it was useful. Take care. Well, Bill, I, you know, uh, it, it's an hour of Paul Singer's time uh, and getting a chance to listen to him speak for an hour what a gift that was. I mean, for me personally, that was just fantastic. I, I enjoyed every single word of that. I did too. And and what I would, I think, to, like to point out is uh, a lot of what he said uh, comes from experience in periods that I think a lot of people who are listening may have only read about in a, yep. a textbook or somebody told them a story. And what I've noticed is 
that things that happened in the 70s, 80s, and even to some degree in the 90s, a lot of today's investors and speculators don't have much of an appreciation for. And it's easy to say to anything that sounds negative to whatever your current thesis is, ah, that doesn't matter, that's old news, yeah. whatever. And I would really encourage people, if Paul said something that you don't really agree with or find uncomfortable, maybe you listen to it again, because there's a lot of what he said that I know to be true. And, yeah. and, and, and it's easy in these periods to think none of that matters. But when he sketched out the case for how the walls are kind of closing in on the central banks and people that are partying because of them. I mean, we're really, I mean, the walls are closing in all around. Now we don't know how much farther they have to, to go to matter. And, um, um, but, um, I think there was so much that could be useful and help people avoid what bad outcomes that might be coming our way down the road. Um, um, he made so many great, um, points that, um, I think most everyone should listen to it a couple of times. Yeah, and I, and I would say, you know, something Paul said quite early there about, you know, he just very casually mentioned about reading about the great inflations. And that's something that not a lot of people have done because it just it just hasn't been relevant for 40 years. But there are, there are two books in particular that for me were, did an extraordinary job of helping me understand how these things happen. One is The, the Dying of Money by Jens O. Parsons. Uh, P-A-R-S-S-O-N, if I'm right. Um, and the other one is uh, When Money Dies. is a theme here, uh, approaching by Adam Ferguson. Um, and each of those just does an extraordinary job of, of explaining what happens during great inflations, uh, what starts them, how the mindset changes, and, the, and the, you know, the actual manifestation of that loss of confidence that Paul talked about. And um, both of them, as I say, do a fabulous job of. They read like thrillers in many cases, um, but they're yeah. very real and and they're very important to understand just how these things can happen. Well, so, the, the, I'm sorry, I was just going to say ahead. that uh, no, no, the, the psychological component, which which he uh, uh, felt was a, a big deal, is, is something that I recall. I was old enough to experience the inflation in some sort of a way that mattered. I was still really young, but. Um, and, 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 I, and when I see people today that say it can't happen because of bank loans and all these things, yeah. um, the, you know, those things, that has been true. But the psychological component is such a big variable. Uh, I, I think that people, because it's hard to model that, right? You, you can't Completely. tease that out of the data. If you were there, you know what it was. And uh, I think that's the most, maybe the most important point that he made, that when that starts to shift and when they lose, people lose confidence and a psychology starts to shift, yeah. it takes draconian measures to get it back. And it took 20% interest rates in Well, uh, and also it, it flips so quickly as well. Once that right. confidence goes, once the mindset shifts, um, it's yeah. too late. If, if you yeah. if you if you if you miss the shift in in mindset, you you you're too late. Because what do they do? Like right. he's pointed out, they get inflation starts to print north of twos, and then they rationalize and they bring out your yield curve control. Well, at some point, people are going to see they're just pouring gasoline on a lit fire, and that yeah. they're totally trapped. And he didn't mention Haverstein by name, but that was the conundrum the Germans faced, right? They knew exactly they couldn't right. stop printing or things would collapse. And so they were caught and they took the easier path, what they thought was either easier path, but it, it turned out to be the much more disastrous path. So yeah. um, the road well, ahead just, is- the, 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 the thing that um, 
the thing that frightened me the most, I think, about what Paul said is his belief that the central bankers don't understand that oh. the asset price inflation. So, sorry, is, you know, uh, when I wrote my when I did the research for my book, yeah, um, I had only I was only able to get the minutes because there's a. I should know this, but it's either a five-year or seven-year lag. Of, five, I, always, yes, I, I, I want to yeah, say one, it's, it's the opposite. It's the other one. Yeah. But anyway, it doesn't matter. So when my book, when I was doing the research on my book in, in late 07, I think I couldn't get minutes much past about 2000. So I knew for a fact, and I have quotes in the book about what they I'll never forget. There was one meeting where Mike Prell, who was slightly skeptical, talks about you know, you know, this is like the South Sea bubble. I think it was Red Hat that went public. I don't remember which one. Yeah. And nobody said a word. So yeah. after reading, those, I knew they didn't understand anything. Um, and I haven't gone back to read from the real estate period, bubble period, but he just told us and it doesn't surprise me. So I've, I've felt since, I don't know, for the last shoot, yeah. 15 years that they had no idea. They have, if they had any idea they could not pursue these policies. The only way you can pursue them is if you don't think anything bad can happen because of them, or you think you can stop anything bad immediately. Like they, they talk about stopping inflation, yeah. raising rates. Well, they're already trapped. They, they, they couldn't execute. They think they're really going to be able to fight the inflation that they want once it gets rolling. Of course right, not. But, 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 it, but it's this idea. See, I, I understand why they would just ignore the fact that they're creating what they're creating because it's too painful to stop it and turn the other way. I, I get that, but but if they really don't understand, if they can't join this incredibly short series of dots, um, not just to to asset price inflation, but to wealth inequality, if they genuinely don't understand these things, that terrifies me. I, I just figured they were being disingenuous because they have to be at this point because they can't admit this stuff. But no, that, that you give them too much me. credit. You give them too much wow. credit. I'm sorry to say. Wow. And, and, you know, all one has to do is spend some time with those, with, with the actual transcripts, you know, it's all in there. You read them and you, you, yeah. you'll, you'll learn the personalities of different people and you'll just see how epically clueless they are. And it's, it is scary. And if you take his conversation, go read some of those minutes, come to the conclusion that they don't know what they're doing. It's even scarier. What's amazing to me is there's a lot of smart guys on wall street that understand what Paul said yeah. and know the fed doesn't know what it's doing. I know there's a lot of people that don't know that what I can't understand why there's not more skepticism. Maybe, maybe it's sort of like the functional equivalent of social, social, social media today. You stand well, up I, and say anything too negative. They try Stockholm to cancel syndrome. you. So it's, I think it's you Stockholm know. syndrome, right? Yeah, you, could, you, your career and your, and your bonus depends on them being right so perhaps 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 it's that simple but anyway all right well listen um all that remains is to thank you for listening um thank you for that please if you get a moment to uh, take a second to rate and review us on the itunes store that that really helps uh you can follow fleck on uh twitter should you wish to do so you'll find him at fleck cap right yes sir yes sir and you can find me at T-T-M-Y-G-H. That's all for now. We'll be back with another endgame. Who knows when, but soon. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.